We've been in John's gospel, as you know. Let me just refresh your memory. This Jesus, who has so captivated Ben that uh, he has moved to Pakistan and with joy is there, out of his comfort zone to tell people about Jesus. Let me tell you what's transpired. He was taken prisoner. He did nothing wrong, but he was arrested on trumped-up charges. He was brought in chains to face a series of harsh and humiliating trials. The first set were Jewish religious trials. He met before Annas, a prior high priest, then his son-in-law, the present high priest Caiaphas, who then marched him before the whole then Jewish government known as the Sanhedrin, consisting of 71 members. And after all of that, understand, this was at night, and so all through the night, the Lord was kept up for this series of trials. First, the Jewish religious trials. We began last week to see it wasn't over. The next series of trials, he, the innocent one, Jesus faced, was of a civil, governmental nature, not religious. And since Rome occupied Israel at the time, they were the in-place government, and so Jesus was brought before the governor of Rome in the Holy Land. His name was Pontius Pilate, and it was a horrific time he was exposed to, entirely unjust, and during this time he was humiliated, and he was mocked, and he experienced a whole lot of suffering. Pilate examined him came to the conclusion that he was, Jesus was innocent of all charges, but Pilate was in a precarious political position. He was a consummate politician, interested less in truth than in the longevity of his office. As a result, he didn't want to upset the apple cart. The Jewish religious leadership demanded that this radical rabbi Jesus be executed. Pontius Pilate found now just no justification for so doing, but he couldn't just release him lest he upset and anger the Jews because if they got upset, they would have sent word to Pilate's boss in Rome. His, he was an emperor named Tiberius. Already, Tiberius didn't think much of Pontius Pilate. He made a lot of leadership mistakes, and so he was on a thin edge. And so he's in this precarious position. He's trying to come up with a compromise position, and he thinks he has stumbled upon it. And so he decides, I know what I'll do. I don't want to crucify him. I don't want to murder him, this Jesus, who's done something wrong in the eyes of the Jewish religious establishment. So instead, I'll have him publicly flogged. I'll beat him. We will whip him. We'll scourge him. And maybe then people in the crowd will take pity on him, let him go, and that will settle the whole issue, and then I'll be reelected next year. That's kind of what he's after. Will his plan work? Well, let's find out. We're in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1 tonight. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. That's what the text says. The prisoner, being prepared for this scourging, would first be stripped naked, then he would be tied to a low post, kind of like what you see depicted before you. 
The purpose of it was to so stretch out the skin on the prisoner's back that the whip would more easily cut through layers of skin. This is what happened to the Lord. He was led out of the praetorium, praetor meaning governor. It was Pilate's residence and also the hall of judgment. The crowd was outside. Jesus was inside. Pilate led him out in order to be scourged before the crowd. And the scourging involved a leather kind of a whip that looked something like this. Uh, the Romans used it. It was called the flagellum, and it was knotted. You can see knots on it, and weighted with pieces of metal and or bone. The Jewish law set a limit on the number of uh, strokes that could be applied. It was 40 max, but remember, it's the Romans administer, administering this whipping, and who knows how many strokes the Lord received at this time. And the soldiers, according to verse 2, Roman soldiers, here's what they did. They twisted together a crown of thorns and, well, they put it on Jesus' head. I wondered, where, where, did, they get the, where did they get the thorns? Were they just there? I mean, they're in the praetorium with the, with the thorns available such that they could form it into a crown. It was to mock him, you know. And... Um, I did a little research, and there's a tree uh, that you see pretty commonly in this area. It's called a date palm tree. It produces very sharp uh, thorns, which are so sharp they can go through plastic, let alone uh, the skin, uh, let alone one's, one's scalp. They were long, spike-like thorns, kind of like what you're seeing here. Well, that's where they got it. But, but then I thought, but where did thorns come from to begin with? How did we get thorns? Well, we got thorns from human sin. A first man and woman, Adam and Eve, you know about this. Genesis records it. They sinned against Almighty God, and there were consequences, which you and I experience even down to this very day. And so way back in Genesis chapter 3, Verses 18 and 19, we're told some of the consequences of the sin of our forebears, Adam and Eve. And so these, in response, are God's words to Adam in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns, so there it is, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. And so now we know where the thorns came from. The thorns are a consequence of human sin. It wasn't God's creation plan. It was a garden characterized by paradise. It was a garden of Eden. There weren't to be thorns there. This is one of the environmental consequences of human sin. And so someone said, I think quite persuasively, Jesus was wearing the consequences of Adam's sin and yours and mine at this particular time. Verse 2 furthermore goes on to tell us that the Roman soldiers put a 
purple robe on him. Where'd they get it? Well, there might have been some discarded cloth or even an old rug and some Roman soldier got the clever idea. I'll get it and I'll just throw it on this pretender to the throne, this so-called king of the Jews, and we'll mock him with this, with this robe. And in verse 3, they be, furthermore, they began to come up to him and they said, Hail, king of the Jews. You see, they were they were mocking him, and then they gave him slaps on the face. Roman soldiers got bored, especially when you were on guard duty. They had nothing to do, so they entertained themselves with a variety of games. In fact, you'll see before you um, the remains of a carved Roman game in the stone pavement where prisoners were kept. You can see this. We have in Jerusalem to this very day. You can even find out how that game, you see it inscribed there, how it took place. Well, that seemed fairly harmless, but they did more harsh things to entertain themselves. One of the games they came up with was kind of a mocking game. They would find the prisoner who looked most unlikely to be well thought of, and they, in mockery, would set him up to look like the king. Uh, they would make a fool of him. That was the idea. And folks, that's the game they played with reference to the Jesus we bow before and worship. That's what he was subjected to. Folks, it is nothing but sheer and utter cruelty we are reading about. You wonder how they could be so capable of such cruelty, but let's bring it home. Do you think we could be? I think we could. Folks, uh, sin, unchecked and unbounded, knows no bounds or limitations. And when the darkness gets a hold of you, yes, even this kind of unnecessary cruelty uh, can prevail. Jesus was innocent. You know that. I know that. Pilate knew that. And yet Jesus was treated as though he was guilty. And this, you realize, he submitted to for you and for me. Earlier on, we read that Jesus was slapped in the face while standing trial before Annas. Later, he was spat upon and beaten when he stood before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Now we're reading that he was scourged by Pilate and mocked and beaten by the soldiers. Folks, all this even before the Lord was impaled upon a cross. Look how much he suffered for us and for our sin, which leads me to this, I think, understandable question. Are you ready to admit Jesus has suffered enough for human sin so that we would be better off not seeking to add to it by punishing ourselves. It's a disgraceful, disrespectful way of saying to the sin substitute, you didn't suffer enough for me, I have to add to it in various ways. A better thing to do when confronted by your sin, it seems to me, is to confess it as sin, to turn from it and to Jesus, the sin-bearer, Accept his forgiveness with it and then just get down the road with him just as if you had never sinned. 
Jesus suffered enough. We don't have to add to it in any way. Now in verse 4, Pilate, he came out again. If you can track this, he's going inside the praetorium to be with Jesus. He's coming outside to say some words to the crowd. And so Jesus came out again and he said to them, Behold, I am bringing him, Jesus, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out. So he brought Jesus back out. And there he was wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. Famous words down to this very day. Why did Pilate do all this? I think he did so to dissuade the Jewish leaders away from their irrational and murderous intentions. How could this pathetic, pitiful creature, how could this one be a threat to Israel or to Rome? Leave him alone. Let him go. I think that's what Pilate had in mind. Behold the man. Look at Is this the threatening man you are insisting I execute? He's beaten. He's mocked. The crown of thorns would have released all kinds of blood flowing down his face. The robe maybe was even sticking to his back because it was bloodied and now drying up. Does this beaten, humiliated, weakened, bloodied man, does he pose a threat to you or to anyone? And so Pilate puts this pathetic Jesus on display. Behold the man, says he in Latin. These are the famous words, Eki homo. Behold the man. In fact, here is a painting depicting that scene. This was done by a Dutch artist, Hieronymus Bosch, in 1500. It is called Behold the Man, or Eki homo, again in Latin. Pilate's interest, I think, was to communicate this. Do you really think that such a pitiful specimen is a danger to Israel or to Rome. And Pilate, I think, is expecting for them to go away sorry over their irrational passion to do away with such a one. But he's surprised to see what happens. Verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, Jesus, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify. In spite of all reason, they cried out repeatedly for the ultimate punishment to be applied, crucifixion. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And herein is the third time uh, Pilate makes that statement. What has he done wrong? Do with him what you wish. You see, he wanted some kind of compromise position that somehow would please everybody, but there was none. And so the Jews answered him in verse 7, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. As you read all four gospel accounts about this, you will see that the Jewish religious leaders indicted Jesus seven different times. And so in Matthew chapter 26, they said he threatened to destroy the temple. And then in John chapter 18, he said, they said he's an evildoer. 
And then in Luke chapter 23, they said he's perverting the nation. He's forbidding tax tribute to Caesar. He's stirring up the people and he is presenting himself as a king. However, supporting evidence for these six indictments was sorely absent. And so the indictments were not carried. Therefore, they came up with a seventh, and it's the one we just read about in this verse. He made himself out to be the Son of God. Blasphemy is what they accused him of. The Son of God means to be God. It means you have the same essential nature as God. The Son of God is claiming to be God, and that is blasphemy. The penalty of which, according to their law, is death. Therefore, verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So this implies he was already afraid. What's he afraid of? Folks, he's afraid of a riot. It's Passover. There are thousands of Jews in this place. If they go crazy, word will get back once again to Tiberius, the emperor in Rome. If Pilate cannot control the crowd, he's an unfit leader and he'll have to be removed. He's afraid of that for sure. He's afraid of the potential loss of his position. You can be sure of that. And there's something else. No, there's someone else he's afraid of. He's really afraid of Jesus. Listen, while all this is going on, listen to what Matthew says in chapter 27, verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate, that is, his wife, Pilate's wife, sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night, I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Something's happening to Pilate's wife. She wanted to get, even in the midst of this, if you can imagine it, there he is sitting in judgment. The crowd is there. Crucify him, crucify him. They're demanding. She slips a note to him, sends him a text. I don't know how she communicated it, but she did. Watch out for him. He's a righteous. Pilate's afraid of Jesus. And now to compound it, he just found out Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. This really struck fear into him, and I'll tell you why. The Romans were a very superstitious people, and they worshipped a pantheon of gods. Many, not one, a whole pantheon of gods. And they believed sometimes those gods came to earth in the form of man. Therefore, if you did not respond well, if you did not treat one of those gods well, they could make life miserable for you. <gasps> Is this Jesus one of them? Undoubtedly, he's thinking, you say. Therefore, Pilate is afraid. And verse 9, he entered into the praetorium. Here he goes. He's going back inside now. He enters into the praetorium again. Jesus is already back in there. And he says to Jesus, where are you from? You see, he's filled with fear. He wants to find out, are you an appearance of God? Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Isn't that perplexing? Why, why did the Lord remain silent at this time? Why did he not answer Pilate's question? Well, the answer is he had already answered it. We saw it in the last chapter, John 18. And at that time, Pilate showed absolutely no interest in the truth he had been told. And so now we can learn a principle uh, about how God works. It's this. God does not reveal new truth to those who have rejected the truth he's already made available to them. 
if you want to grow in the Christian life, you have to respond to what you already know to be true. When you read Scripture, you have to obey it. You have to submit to it. And obedience begets, obedience to revelation begets new revelation. The key to unlocking the Scriptures is a willingness to do what it says. Pilate had none, and therefore the Lord Jesus would not waste any more words on him. Now there's something else behind his silence. It's this. Listen to Isaiah of all things, chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his life. Doesn't that sound like Isaiah is speaking of Jesus? Yes, 700 years before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah as a prophet, is revealing to us what the Messiah would one day experience. And so what you're seeing here is the Lord fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7. And so Pilate said to him in verse 10, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So here's what happens. If I can get a little psychological, we have interesting human emotions, God-given. Two of them are fear and anger. Where fear prevails, it makes you feel weak and vulnerable. And sometimes to cover up for the fear, you simply manifest anger. That's how it works. So an angry man or woman is usually a fearful or wounded man or woman. The anger is simply a mask for the underlying emotion of woundedness or fear. This is exactly what the case is with Pilate. Pilate is fearful. The text said it. He didn't get the response he was looking for from Jesus, and so the fear turns to anger. He feels out of control. In fact, he's supposed to put this radical Jesus on trial, and yet he feels like he's being put on trial. He feels weak and vulnerable, though he be the governor of Rome, and therefore he covers up for it with a show of strength, and then he gets real angry at Jesus. Do you talk to me this way? I have the power to crucify you. And Jesus answered in verse 11, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. And so the Lord tells Pilate, though he in fact had authority, it is only because God had given it to him. Pilate has no inherent authority. It is a delegated authority. The likes of which we read in Romans 13, verse 1, Paul's words, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, folks, this is hard to swallow, but the world has produced evil and wicked rulers like Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and like Pilate, the Roman governor. And yet it is God, the highest authority, who positions even men such as this and makes use of them in spite of their wickedness for his own good purposes. We're just going to have to know it as the world changes itself. 
And on the throne in many countries today, we have rulers the likes of these, wicked and cruel. You could find yourself crying out, oh God, where are you? I hope we hear the answer fully in control. Nobody operates without my permission. And God can get his redemptive plan done, even through Caiaphas and Pilate, and even through the wicked rulers in positions of authority in the world today. And so the Lord furthermore says to Pilate, for this reason... He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate has a measure of sin, but there's someone, the one who delivered Jesus to Pilate, who has even the greater sin. Pilate was given authority by Almighty God. He misused it and is in fact guilty. However, there is one, the text says, even more guilty. So who is this one who has the greater sin? Well, there's difference of opinion. Some say Judas, others say Caiaphas. I think Caiaphas is the more likely one because it was Caiaphas who sent Jesus bound to Pilate, not Judas. And also, God gave greater privilege and power to Caiaphas even than to Pilate. Caiaphas was given authority to lead God's chosen people. He was the high priest of Israel. Therefore, he bore greater responsibility for leading God's covenant people astray. So in verse 12, as a result of all this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release, look what they do, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So they put this idea in Pilate's mind. Oh no, if word gets back to Tiberius that I have released a man who was a threat to Rome, my career, perhaps even my life, would be over. At the least, Pilate would certainly lose his imagined status as Amicus Caesarus, Latin for friend of Caesar. It was a spe specific position bequeathed by Caesar to those who he draw in, drew in close. Amicus Caesaris. Pilate prized this position. He, he, he had an ambition for it. Now it's being threatened. The Jewish religious leaders say no one can be a friend of Caesar if they don't deal with this King Jesus. By the way, here is a bust of Tiberius Caesar, there he is. Not a bad-looking guy, but uh, his heart was as cold and stony as that statue is. You know what's ironic? A pilot desperately wants to be a friend of Caesar, but Caesar could care less about Pilate. Pilate, I mean, Caesar doesn't want to be Pilate's friend, but Pilate desperately wants to be Caesar's friend. What a vain attempt! I hope we don't do stuff like that. Run after friendship with ones who don't even care about us. I mean, what a friend we have in Jesus. Don't you think that's a better relationship to pursue? So verse 13, therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. Here we go again. He brings him out again. This time he sat him down on the judgment seat. There's a Greek word for it. It's called bima. It's a raised kind of a platform where Roman governors made their decisions. 
He sat Jesus down on the judgment seat at a specific place called the pavement. In Hebrew, actually Aramaic, the word is Gabbatha. Here's a painting of that scene by James Tissot, a French artist who painted this in the 1800s. Can you see that raised platform? That's the bima. And you see that paved area down below? That's what we're talking about here. Gabbatha means elevation. Uh, that's the pavement that John is telling us about here. It took place right outside the praetorium. Pontius Pilate takes his place on a seat, the accused Jesus. You see him bound below. There's a ravenous, maddened crowd all around him. He's being guarded by soldiers, and Pilate is readying him, this Jesus, now for formal sentencing. John wants us to know the day, the time, so verse 14 tells us, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. That's a serious time of getting things ready for Passover. One of the things you have to do is clean out all manner of leaven in your home, because leaven uh, in the Bible, is a symbol of sin. So any foods containing leaven have to be identified, collected, and burned because leaven is a symbol of sin. In addition, all work would have to stop in preparation for the Passover. And furthermore, the lambs, the Passover lambs, would be being readied for slaughter and sacrifice. And all along, this is taking place at the very time when the Passover lamb is about ready to be sentenced to death by crucifixion. And so this is the day, and then the time is given. It was about the sixth hour. If this is based on Roman time reckoning, and I think it is, that's six o'clock in the morning. It's early. And he, Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they're looking at this this disheveled, beaten, bloodied, pitiful creature on whose head is a crown of thorns and an old, dusty, discarded garment uh, as a fake robe and no power, no might, no nothing. And yet Pilate sarcastically says to them, Behold your king. They couldn't accept it, you see. He was not the king they were looking for. They were looking for a king who would rid them of Roman oppression. And they missed entirely the whole purpose, nature of the first coming of their king, Yeshua, King Jesus. He came first to suffer and die for human sin. He'll come again, then to judge sinners. He came the first time humble and mounted on a colt. He'll come the second time on a white horse and in victory. If you miss his first coming, you'll not be ready for his second coming. My people have missed his first coming. He came as a suffering servant. The next time he will come as risen Savior to judge the sin of the world. Anyway, they looked upon this one and he didn't satisfy their expectation of who the, their king ought to be. And so they cried out in verse 15, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? He's being sarcastic. 
And the chief priests, look at this, answered, We have no king but Caesar. Shocking words. In their contempt for their real king, they declared Caesar to be their king. These are blasphemous words, yet it's all true. Since my people, I'm sad to say, Jewish people, have rejected our own King Jesus, we have been left with no true king to lead us, to provide for us, nor to protect us. This has been the tragic history of my people down to this day. It's a history of wandering. It's a history of contempt, history of persecution and scattering and suffering and holocausts. And it's picking up steam again. My people are by the thousands fleeing Europe right now. They see the rise of anti-Semitism reminiscent of Nazi Germany once again. And even in our good old USA, even in high seats in government, we see a anti-Semitic voices rising like never before. We see a country, Israel, the size of New Jersey, assailed and assaulted by enemies on all sides and even within. It has no natural resources, no oil reserves, no nothing. It's mostly desert, and yet there is this intent on wiping out the Jews again. Why is this happening? It's because my people have declared no to King Jesus. And when you remove yourself from the watch care of the good shepherd, you are left to be subject to ravenous predatory wolves. Please learn from my people. Jesus wishes to wrap his arms upon us, but if we around us, but if we reject King Jesus, we will be left with no king to lead us, provide us, and protect us. Daniel spoke of a coming time. It's a horrible and scary time called the time of Jacob's trouble, otherwise known as the time of the Great Tribulation. The key subjects during that time are my people. We will be persecuted again. There will be an attempt at genocide, ridding the world of the blight of the Jews. Well, God will hold responsible those who do it, and yet I, my people, bear a major share of the responsibility, I must tell you. When we make a statement like, I don't want you, King Jesus, I'll take King Caesar. King Jesus stands above Jerusalem, looks to it, and weeps because he knows what will befall the people whom he loves, the Jews. And history has proven that to be true down to this very day. But is that the end of the story? Oh, no. Read the Bible. Read Romans 11, which says, In that day, all Israel will be saved. There's an end of a different sort for my people. In fact, Zechariah, one of our prophets in chapter 12, verse 10, said this. 
with regard to God. I will pour out on the house of David and on, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. God is not through with my people and that means he's not through with you. The whole reason for God's recorded relationship with the Jews is so that you can see two things, human nature, it is sinful, and divine nature, holy yet merciful. My people sinned. My people have, even to this day, rejected our own king. My people will find mercy. What about you? Have you rejected, in your own way, King Jesus as the one who is rightful King and Lord of our lives? If so, you too can find his mercy. What's the evidence and proof thereof? The fact that Jews are still here and still will be here in the end. It's not because of any good thing in the Jews, not at all. It's because through them, perhaps the most spiritually privileged people on earth, perhaps the most hard-hearted people on earth, yet through them, God will display one of his attributes, mercy and grace. If you doubt God's capacity to be merciful, merciful and gracious to you, I have two words to prove you're wrong, the Jew. Great nations have come and gone, but my puny people are still here. Why? How? It's because of the grace and mercy of God. If you say, oh God, you can never forgive my sin. Oh, yes, he could. If he's in a sustained relationship with the Jews, don't you think he's willing to enter into a sustained relationship with you? A relationship that will not let you go. I tell you, as we sit here comfortably tonight, Jesus went through all the discomfort we just read about and more, which we'll read about in subsequent weeks. This Jesus stands ready and willing to be the Savior and King of anybody here who lets him. I pray you do not make the mistake of my people and reject the real king for false pretenders to the throne. Let Jesus be on the throne of your life, be guided, provided for, and protected through life. Don't seek friendship with ones like Caesar when you can have Jesus as your personal savior and friend. Before you leave tonight, we really desperately would love to talk to you about it in the Connections Center right back there. There will be people there who will talk to you about King Jesus and who will pray with you and for you about anything on your mind. Folks, we are desperately interested in alliances and relationship with those who couldn't care less about us. But Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Jesus offers a friendship the likes of which we have never experienced. The kind of friendship that will not let us go. What a friend we have in Jesus. I think that would be a good way for us to end our service. Would you stand to your feet? Let's sing just a bit of that beautiful song. It's beautiful because the words are true. It will not be beautiful the way I sing it, as you know by now. But I... 
uh, am counting upon your assistance. Let's sing together. What a friend in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because And if you make Jesus your friend tonight, that's what you can do. You have a relationship with him and access to him so you can carry to him everything in prayer. I hope you don't miss out on the privilege of being on friendly terms with the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Not Caesar, but Jesus the Christ. God bless you folks. See you next time.